So as of today, this morning, Lauren and I have been married for one year, one month, and four days. And uh, I took a marriage and family class in seminary, and what we learned in that class was that what married couples struggle with or argue about or kind of have uh, tension about in their first year of marriage, that they are going to have that same problem or that same set of problems for the rest of their marriage. So like year one is pretty indicative of what the rest of your marriage is going to be like. And so in the one month and four days that Lauren and I have been married beyond our one year, that has proved true. And if, uh, you know, I, I think every couple, like, as an umbrella struggle, struggles with communication, I think we can all agree that's hard. But if there's a specific thing uh, above any other that Lauren and I have talked about, stressed about, had a lot of tension over uh, in our marriage, it has been about money. And so money is a big uh, part of just kind of who we are, just to give you a little background about both of us, uh, my dad is an accountant, and so I've been able to bounce a checkbook since I was 11. Um, if I ever, you know, earned money or was given money, like I had a piggy bank that had three compartments and 10% went to the church, 20% went to savings, and then I could do the rest uh, with what I wanted. Um, Lauren also comes from a very financially conscious family. When I went to her dad, um, he's a retired colonel in the Air Force, so I just call him the colonel. When I went to the colonel and asked if I could marry Lauren, he gave me three conditions. That divorce is not an option, that I would love, serve, protect her, great. And third is that we took Dave Ramsey's financial peace class before we got married. And so the colonel is basically Dave Ramsey 2.0. And so he, he actually teaches the class. Um, he, he made all of his kids go through like the junior class when, when they were growing up. And, and so Lauren and I both come from very uh, financially focused, financially conscious families. And, and that shows itself today. Um, we, we, we hate spending money. Um, whenever we go out to a restaurant, uh, I just learned that we both do this. We don't look for what we want. We look for like the cheapest thing on the menu and then just pick from like those two or three things. Um, and the whole time that I've known Lauren, I've never seen her buy anything that wasn't on clearance or at least 50% off. Um, me, I just don't buy things. I would prefer to wear uh, my clothes from high school. Um, like we, we just, we hate spending money. It's just a, a, a tension that we have. And so knowing that is my background and knowing that that's kind of where my heart is coming from as we approach this passage, I got to tell you that as I sat down for the first time to study this passage this week, that it absolutely wrecked me. There are two people and two views of money going on in this passage. You have Mary, who um, is... We're going to be in John 12, by the way. Uh, so go ahead and turn there. John 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. Mary anointing Jesus. And so you have Mary who is giving her first and her best. She's not holding anything back from Jesus. That's one person. And then you have Judas who he is thinking much more 
practically, much more pragmatically, much more, okay, what could we do in the long run if we measured all of this out very carefully and were very conservative with our money? And as soon as I read it, I knew right away who I was in the story. I'm, I'm Judas. I think practically. I think pragmatically. I, I, I want to, uh, if, you, if you're going to get a dollar out of me, you are going to have to pry it out of my hands. And so it just as I studied and prepared this week, I, I wept a little bit just because of how perfectly Judas represented me. How greedy he was, how selfish he was, how cold his love to Jesus was. His view of God was so low, and it reflected in how he used his money. And I just looked at him and I said, that's me. And because this text centers on how we view and use our money, this sermon is going to center on how we view and use our money. And money is a very personal thing. Um, it makes, uh, it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about, and so kind of before we dive into this text, I just want to give a few clarifiers so you'll know um, my heart uh, as I come to this and kind of what we hope to accomplish here. Um, number one, I'm not coming at this as someone who has this all figured out and has mastered this. Um, I know that money is a huge idol in my life. I think about it all the time. It keeps me up at night. I worry about it. Um, I don't know all of your hearts, but I know mine. And if I had to guess, if we were going to rank us out uh, for people whose top idol is money, I, I guarantee you I would be at the top or very near the top of that list. So this is not me coming at a, this from like, a, I'm holier than thou. Uh, I, I need this. I'm, I'm preaching to myself first. And number two, um, whenever you hear a preacher start talking about money, everybody just gets nervous. And so I just want to go ahead and tell you on the front end, there is not going to be a big ask here at the end, okay? We're not starting a building campaign. Um, Mark and I aren't looking to get rich off the church. The goal of this sermon is not to have less money in your pocket and more money in mine. The, the goal of this sermon is for our affections to be changed. The goal of this sermon is for us to see Jesus for who he really is and to let that change how we do everything. And so we're not so much focused on the results, you know, how we spend our money. I'm much more uh, concerned and focused on the process. Where is your heart? How much do you love Jesus? How high of you of Jesus do you have? That's, that's the goal this week. That is the goal every week. And so I am going to go ahead and give you a bit of a hint of what the application is going to be at the end. There is going to be this call to follow Jesus, to obey him, and to serve him in every area of our lives and to be able to lay everything that we have down at his feet. So that call is coming, but just to avoid any perception that we as a church are trying to be a money grabber, we, we want to say up front that while there is going to be that call and that application, that doesn't mean that you have to give directly to this church. 
If, as you're listening and as you're considering how to apply uh, what we study and as the Holy Spirit works in your heart, if you think, okay, I, I want to give to International Justice Mission or to Corps or to the Edwards family, the uh, missionaries that we support in Italy or to a neighbor or to a gospel community uh, member, somebody who is in need, bless that. God bless it. Again, we are not trying to get more money here into this church. I think there are biblical instructions to give to your church, but that's just not the goal of this sermon. The goal of this sermon is to see Jesus for who he really is and to have our affections changed. And then we'll just look at some, some practical steps of how to apply that. So this passage begins, we're in John chapter 12, 1 through 8, the passage where Mary anoints Jesus, and it's six days before Passover, and Jesus is in Bethany spending time with Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so last week was Vision Sunday, it was a little different Sunday in the life of our church, but the week before that, we were in John 11, where we read this incredible story where Lazarus had died, and Jesus purposefully stayed away and almost let the pain grow worse. And then he came and he entered into the pain of Mary and Martha, and he just, he counseled them and comforted them. And then he just spoke, and Lazarus came out of the grave. It was just this incredible story. And if you raise somebody from the grave, the least that they can do is give you a meal. And so, so that's what they're doing. They're like, Jesus, dinner's on us tonight. And so he, he's with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's with this family, and each of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, is serving Jesus in a different way. I think there are three ways that we can serve and give back to the Lord. I think we can use our talent, our time, and our treasure. And Martha is using her talent. She's the one preparing the meal. She's the one playing host. She's the one saying, you got enough food? You need anything to drink? Can I get anything for you? She's just very hospitable. The Lord had given her the gift of hospitality. She was exercising that gift and serving other people. She was using her talent. Lazarus was giving Jesus his time. So Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus hadn't gotten over it. He wasn't concerned about the meal. He wasn't concerned about anything. We read that he was reclining at the table with Jesus. He was like, Jesus, you're my boy. I just want to be as close to you as possible. I'm not worried about anything else. I want to spend as much time as close to you as I possibly can. I'm not worried about anything else, just, just me and you, Jesus. And so Lazarus gave Jesus his time. And I think there's, there are full sermons in both of those, but this text focuses on Mary. And in verse 3, we read that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So Mary gave Jesus her treasure. And we learn from Judas's critique here in a minute that the ointment that she poured on Jesus was worth 300 denarii, which was equivalent to about one year's worth of wages at that time. So I did a little demographic research, and here in Parker, Colorado, the average annual household income is $102,000. So just imagine having a bottle of 
anything that is worth $102,000 and being able to hold that in your hand. This is not just a common thing. This is not something you just break out on a random day. This is for only the, the most special occasions. This was the most valuable, most important possession that Mary had. To give you a sense for exactly how precious it was to her, notice that she didn't even use it on her own brother. Okay, ointment was used to prepare bodies for burial. And guess what? Lazarus, whom she loved very much, had just died. And Mary thought, I mean, I love my brother, but he's not worth this ointment. But then when Jesus comes into her house... It's no holes barred. And she goes and she gets the most expensive, most valuable thing that she has, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. She pours all of it. She doesn't pour half of it. She doesn't measure it out carefully so so that there's still some for her. She gives all of it at once. And she says, okay, I've, I've anointed my Savior's feet. Now they have to be uh, washed and cleaned. But, but you know, th- this is my Savior, the Lord of the universe's feet. He can't just have a normal house rag. He needs the best. And so I'm going to use my own hair in order to clean his feet. So th- this was just an over-the-top, extravagant, extraordinary. Mary is sold out. I'm going to give Jesus everything. Take my possessions, take my pride, take my dignity, take everything. And if I get Jesus in return, then it was worth it. And I came out ahead. So that was Mary's view of money. And now let's compare that with Judas. Judas says what most of us would probably say, and he said it in the way that most of us probably would have said it. He was greedy, but he didn't want to sound greedy, so he just couched it in really spiritual language. And he said, why wasn't the ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And so Judas had mixed motives. Uh, We read that he was the one that was in charge of keeping the money for Jesus and the disciples. And so for three years, as they were going about doing ministry, he was in charge of keeping the money. And we read that he would help himself to that money. And so he was lining his pockets the whole time. And so when Judas said, why couldn't we sell that and give it to the poor? What he really was after was just trying to get more money. But, But he wanted to make it sound more spiritual. And so he said, wouldn't it be wiser or more prudent, more practical? Wouldn't more people be helped if we sold this and gave it to the poor? And, and, and here's the, the really hard thing about this text. Um, so we know what Jesus thinks. We know that he is going to honor Mary and that he is going to rebuke Judas. Um, but even knowing that that's what Jesus thinks, there is still a part of me that thinks that Judas was right. I mean, I mean think about it. What, what's more important? That Jesus have really clean and nice-smelling feet for a few hours, or that hundreds of hungry people get fed? What's more important, that Jesus get the world's most expensive mani-pedi, or that real people with real needs get help? 
And so I, I got to be honest with you, I, I think like Judas. I, I think most of us think like Judas. His route is safer, it's more practical, more people can be helped, there's more money to fall back on in case you know, they, they hit a rough spot uh, in the economy. And so, so from a financial-only perspective, Judas's plan makes a lot of sense. But, but what does Jesus say to that kind of financial thinking? In verse 7, he said to Judas, Leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So, so here's the tension. On paper, Judas's plan is better. And, and it's how most of us think. But Jesus hates it. He rebukes that kind of thinking. And I think that should force us to ask the question, why? And I think there are several reasons why Jesus rebukes that kind of thinking. Uh, number one, Jesus had already taught his disciples that money is always a love and a heart issue. In Matthew 6, uh, 21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your money naturally follows your heart. Your, your checkbook reveals what you value the most. You spend the most on what you love the most. Money is a love and a heart issue, and Jesus knew their hearts. And so Mary's heart was full of love and adoration and devotion to Jesus, and that expressed itself in how she gave of her possessions. She didn't hold anything back. She had great love, and so she had great giving. Judas, on the other hand, he was self-absorbed. He was selfish. He had a little love for Jesus, and so he tried to hold back and to keep everything for himself. And if we, if we take even a closer look, I think we'll begin to get this whole picture and some of this tension will begin to make sense. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. And as I've studied and as I've thought, that kind of reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter when he said, get behind me, Satan. And the context for that, uh, Jesus had just talked about going to the cross and Peter said, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, you're the Christ. You don't deserve the cross. You, you shouldn't go to the cross. That's beneath you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And so in this passage, even though he didn't know it, I think Judas was trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. So we know from the beginning of the passage that it's six days before Passover, and Passover was the event that the Jews celebrated to remember and celebrate when the Lord had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so they would sacrifice so many animals. Blood would just be pouring through the temple and through the streets. It was a very costly and very visual expression of worship in response to what God had done for them. And Jesus is on a mission from his Father. He has been sent into this world to die. And so he is thinking that 
this is my last week on earth. Passover is about to happen, and I am going to be one of those sacrifices. I'm going to be the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. The sacrifice. And so when Mary anointed Jesus, she just did that out of love and adoration and devotion, but Jesus saw another meaning to it. He saw it in light of Passover and in light of the sacrifice that he was about to make. He saw this as a preparation for his burial. He was on his way to the cross, and Mary was anointing him as one step on that journey. And so when Judas tried to argue that the ointment should be sold and given away for something else, Jesus interpreted that as, Judas, you're trying to keep me from going to the cross, so leave her alone. Jesus wouldn't have any of it. You see, see, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event that has happened in all of human and cosmic history. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they agreed on their plan of redemption. And it included the cross. In Revelation 13, verse 8, we read that John saw Jesus and he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, it was as Jesus had, was already that lamb that was going to be slain. And so in the Garden of Eden, once Adam and Eve had sinned, they didn't catch God off guard. It's not that they sinned and God was like, whoa, okay, Son, Holy Spirit, let's gather a few angels around here. I did not see this coming. We have to come up with another plan. No, 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 no. The cross was always plan A. That was the plan from eternity past, and it was the only option. And so Christ took on flesh, and he was born to die. And his death was the greatest sacrifice ever given. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have stayed in the throne throne room of God and been surrounded by the praises of the heavenly host saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That would have been right. That is what he deserved. But instead, he chose to step into the creation that he had made and to become like one of his creation. He became like us. He put on weak and humble and fragile flesh. And he left the praises of heaven, which he deserved, and then he went to the cross and got what he didn't deserve. He lived the perfect, sinless life. He went to the place that you and I deserved. Because we have sinned, because we have disobeyed, because we have fallen short of the glory of God, it was us that deserved to be on that cross, to receive that punishment and that damnation. But Jesus said, put it on me. I'll take it. And I think just to make the sacrifice, the weight of what he did even more clear, like Jesus didn't just die and sacrifice himself. It's the way that he did it. See, the Romans had perfected torture. It would take people days to die from crucifixion. And so when the nails were driven through his hands and his feet, like the the bones and the nerves and the pain receptors in his brain, the the very things that Jesus had created, they worked perfectly, and he felt the pain. It, It was the most generous, 
undeserved sacrifice ever given. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians just over and over and over that we preach Christ and Him crucified. That we need to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if Christ wasn't crucified and resurrected, then we, above all else, are meant to be pitied. But because Jesus did go to the cross and because He did sacrifice Himself, that changes everything for us. So to bring it back to our passage for today where we're comparing Mary and Judas in our view of money, something that we like to say here at Redemption Parker is that in response as worship to what God has done for us, namely in His crucifixion and resurrection, that we want to give our first and our best. And we do that because God gave us His first and his best. He gave us his only son who died the death that you and I deserved. And so when you give, if you are giving out of compulsion or out of guilt, then let me plead for you to go to the cross. Spend some time at the foot of the cross. Behold the God who became man, who put on flesh and had that flesh broken, who had his blood spilled out, who had your sin taken upon him. Your biggest problem has been taken care of if you believe in that crucified Savior. And and once you begin to wrap your mind around the weight and the magnitude and the sacrifice and the humility that Christ showed on the cross in doing that for you, then you're going to see uh, yourself transition from thinking like Judas to thinking like Mary. Instead of thinking, okay, how much can I keep for myself? How much can I keep where I know that I'm comfortable? Because your biggest problem has been taken care of, you're going to think, what? What can I give away? What else can I give away? Everything that I have, I didn't even earn. It's all a gift. My biggest problem has been taken care of. Let me give everything away. I'm going to give my first and my best as a response of worship. And so I already hinted at the application. I'm just going to circle back around to it now. And that in light of what Christ has done for us, then our discipleship should extend over into our finances. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you this. Is the way that you spend your money showing that Jesus is your greatest treasure? If someone were to look at your bank statement, would they be able to say, this person isn't living for themselves, they're not living uh, to just gather more posterior possessions, they're not living for the world, they are living because Jesus is the most important reality in their lives. And again, I'm, I'm not focused on the results. I'm, I'm not focused on the money. I'm focused on the process. Look to Jesus. Go to the cross. See what he has done for you. And then in response to that, as an act of worship, let what you see at the cross determine how you spend your money. And so to close, I, I do want to be as practical as possible. And Mary, in this passage, she gave away an entire year's worth of wages in one moment. Just this extravagant, over-the-top outpouring of love 
to Jesus. And if, as you're listening, the Holy Spirit is working in your, in your life to make that kind of generous, gospel-centered, financial, foolish sacrifice, then Lord bless you. I, I, I say go for it. But, but, but I also know that we live in Parker, Colorado, where money and financial security is king, and I doubt that many of us are ready for that same kind of response. And I include myself in that. Um, if you came up to me after the sermon and said, all right, Matthew, like, you just preached this text. You sound like you believe it. Like, let's see, let's see one year's uh, worth of wages and a check given away. Um, I, I, I know I would really struggle with that. I, I hope I would be able to do that. But just in total transparency and honesty, I, I don't know if I'm there yet. And so I've thought about it a lot this week, and I think that what I want this sermon to be is just a, a needle-moving sermon. Um, you don't have to hit a home run every at-bat. Sometimes just getting a single, getting on base is a good step. Um, and, and so the biblical and gospel standard for how we use our money is always going to be able to hold everything with an open hand and say, Lord, do what you will with this, and whatever you call me to do, I'm doing it. That's always the, the standard um, but here's just a, a, a helpful first step to maybe move the needle in our hearts a little more uh, towards that place. So, something that I've noticed is that our income level always seems to match our spending level. If you earn $50,000 a year, you seem to spend $50,000 a year. And then if you get a promotion, now you earn $150,000 a year, now you find yourself living in a nicer house with a nicer car, with nicer clothes. You're going out to eat more often. You're getting the appetizers and the drinks. And then if you, you know, somehow hit jackpot and you're earning $500,000 a year, then before you know it, you're spending $500,000 a year. There, there's this, this unhealthy and automatic connection between our income and our spending. And so just as a way to think through this text and how the Lord has called us to steward what he has given us, just simply consider living below your income level. If you earn $100,000 a year, do your best to live on 80 and ask the Lord how and where he could be calling you to give the other 20000 Maybe the next time you buy a house, uh, you know, get one with one less bedroom. Do you really need the, the hot tub and the entertainment system? Next time you get a car, do you really need a new car? Could you get away with a used car? Just whatever your income level is, take a look at your finances and think, am I living in a way that shows that Jesus is the most valuable thing that I have? And if not, and even if he is, we still need the reminder just go to the cross. Look at what he has done for you there. He was the most generous and sacrificial person in all of human history. And what he accomplished for us means that we hold everything with an open hand because we know that it's not ours and we can give everything to him and his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a, um, a tough text. Um, 
It's a message that challenges us in our American culture. It challenges me. It just brings up so much of our idolatry and security. Um, And so, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit that you would tear down those idols and that you would do that by showing us something that is far greater, far more valuable. Show us Jesus. Show us the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross in redeeming us and paying our penalty and taking what we deserved. And then we ask that by your spirit, you would guide us in just some practical action steps in how to respond. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.